Bibles this afternoon to the Gospel of Mark. So let's do that right now. We've come to the point here in studying Jesus' life to a time when he, for the first time, begins to explain to his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die. Okay? We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. And as we do that now, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study the gospel today and the story of Jesus' life, Help us to understand what he was going through, what the disciples were going through, and why Jesus did what he did, and how it's an encouragement for us today as well. Because we go through difficult times and uh, need reminders of what lies ahead of us. So Father, please put your blessing on our message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We read in Mark 8 and verse 31. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So imagine Peter, just a disciple, <laughs> he's here with the master, the rabbi, uh, the one that they were following, Jesus, and he begins to correct Jesus. So he was a very bold person. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So bold Peter didn't want to hear anything about the Messiah having to die, having to suffer and die. They thought, the disciples thought, that the kingdom of God uh, was going to be set up by Jesus right here and now. That's why he arrived. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. That's why he grew up as a teacher, performing miracles and doing all the things that he was doing they were sure that Jesus had come here and now to set up the promised kingdom of God. They had a lot of traditional yet wrong ideas about what the Messiah would be. You know, the, the prophecies about the Messiah go all the way back to the book of Genesis, really. Amen. And they formed a certain mindset as to what they expected the Messiah to do and to be. They thought that the kingdom of God, first of all, would only be for people of Israel. But Jesus came to show that the kingdom of God was going to be for all people of all nations. So the Jews were a little bit uneasy about that. They thought that the kingdom of God was going to be something visible. It was going to be great armies marching in and the government being set up over all peoples like the Romans and others. But that wasn't the one, or that wasn't the way God intended it to be. In fact, the kingdom of God was going to be invisible. It wasn't something you can see. Uh, Jesus came to bring it, and he told people, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And they're thinking, well, where? <laughs> where is it? Show it to me. Well, it was going to be something internalized. 
When people became followers of Jesus Christ and became Christians, they were going to become part of the kingdom of God, just as you and I did. And it's something that's invisible. Okay? It's the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. It's here, but people can't see it and put their finger on it. Also, the disciples thought that the kingdom of God was going to be a militarily established government run based on religion. It was going to be a theocratic government that would be simply handed to them at some future date. But Jesus didn't come to establish the kingdom the way they expected it to be. He came to begin his church. And of course, he would later send the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the kingdom of God turned out to be something quite different. And Jesus' messiahship turned out to be different from what they expected. Jesus showed that the kingdom he came to establish was open to all nations. It was going to be mysterious. You know, it's not like a human form of government. The kingdom of God is different. Jesus was also going to show that the kingdom of God was already present in their midst and it was aggressively demanding their response. Either you're going to accept Jesus as your savior or you're not. You know, there were prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. A lot of them dealt with him coming in power and majesty, riding on the back of a white horse. But there were also prophecies about the coming Messiah, such as Isaiah 53, that talked about him being a suffering servant. So the Jews tended to focus on the Messiah as a conquering king, but they didn't pay much attention to the prophecies of the Messiah as a suffering servant. But that's what Jesus came first to do, not to establish his kingdom on the spot, but to be the suffering servant who was going to die on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the whole human race. So let's pick it up now in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. So we were in uh, verse 33 where Jesus had to push Peter away because Peter wanted to bring about the establishment of that physical kingdom right away. And he didn't want to hear anything about Jesus, the Messiah, suffering and be, being put to death. So Jesus has compassion on them. He wants to help them because they're confused. They're not really understanding what Jesus is talking about. So in Mark 9, verse 1, he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So those that he's talking to right there, really quick, they're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. To alleviate their fear and confusion, Jesus is going to help their faith and give them a taste of the kingdom only six days later. And sure enough, that's what happens. The disciples had already seen some aspects of the kingdom of God. Whenever they saw Jesus healing the sick or casting out demons, the power of the kingdom of God was at work. And they would certainly witness the kingdom's power a little bit later on Pentecost. But Jesus is going to show them something right now. 
So in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, I mentioned that there's a mysterious aspect to the kingdom of God. For example, why did Jesus do this secretly? Why didn't he do it publicly? And even amongst the 12 apostles, he only takes three of them with him to witness this, what they're about to witness. You know, Jesus amongst the 12 apostles had three of them that were especially close. So he only takes these three with him. They're going to get a glimpse of his future glory. It says he took uh, Peter, James, and John with him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now, what does the word transfigured mean? Well, that's uh, from the Latin. It means change appearance. There's a word in the Greek, and it is metamorphosis. when you morph, you know, you change into something. Uh, who was it? The Teenage Ninja Turtles would morph into a different appearance and become superheroes. Uh, that's kind of like this. Jesus was going to change his appearance. And what he was going to do is he was going to give them just a brief look at what he was going to look like when he eventually ascended back to heaven after his crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension back to heaven, he was glorified. His appearance was changed. So what Jesus is going to do to help the apostles at this crucial time when they're very discouraged, they're expecting their Messiah to take charge, to set up his government right now, defeat the Romans, but he's going to suffer and die. So they don't know how to take that. They're they're confused. So we read on here. Verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, and were talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah, why were these two men there? Well, don't forget that Moses and Elijah were both great heroes among the Jewish people. Moses was the representative of the law. He was the one to whom God gave the law right after the exodus at Mount Sinai. And he gave it then to the people. He taught the people the law of God. And Elijah was perhaps the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. So there with these two men, you have the law and the prophets witnessing and and speaking to Jesus in this case. There's another scripture of this particular account in Luke 9, verse 31. Luke 9, 31, that says, Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah at this time concerning his soon coming ascension into heaven. He was discussing Jesus' imminent departure from Jerusalem after his upcoming death and resurrection. So... That's what they were talking about. And here are three of the apostles there watching this whole thing transpire. Let's read on a little bit further. So it's Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say 
they were so frightened. So perhaps Peter was thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now in the Old Testament, there was a feast, seven-day celebration uh, in the fall when the Jews would look forward to the return of Jesus Christ or the return of the Messiah, let's put it that way, in their thinking, and the arrival of the kingdom of God. So they built shelters or tabernacles uh, and they dwelt in them for the period of time of the festival. And Peter thought, well, maybe since it's the Feast of Tabernacle season, we don't know for sure if it was or not, and that would encourage Elijah and Moses to stay for a while and to dwell with us in these tabernacles. But that didn't happen. It says in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. Now, throughout the Bible, whenever you read about a cloud all of a sudden appearing, that represents the presence of God. You know, when they built the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, at the dedication ceremony for the temple, when the temple was going to open, a huge cloud filled the building, which meant that God was bringing his presence to dwell in that temple. You remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, what led them through the wilderness? Well, at night, a pillar of fire, but during the day, a pillar of smoke, a cloud, in other words. That was God leading them throughout the wilderness for 40 years. Amen. So here, at this crucial point in time, a temple envelops, uh, a cloud rather, envelops them all. So that would represent God's presence. And notice what, what happens then. Verse 7, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. So this is the voice of God. And he's going to inform them about something. He says, this, referring to Jesus, is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. He doesn't say listen to Moses and Elijah. He says listen to Jesus. And then, as he says this, Suddenly, verse 8, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So this is a period of transition. The old covenant is coming to an end, okay, over a period of time. And here's Jesus that is come to establish the new covenant with believers. So instead of honoring Moses and Elijah or paying any heed to them, they just disappear. They fade away. And the voice in the cloud that represents God says, this is my son, listen to him. So there's a transition taking place. The old covenant is coming to an end, the new covenant is beginning, and Jesus is the one representing the new covenant, the very son of God, the Messiah. So this is what God is teaching them through this whole picture. He's showing them that this is the Son of God, and in just a matter of, of several weeks, this is what he's going to look like after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back up to heaven, the glorified Jesus. And here are Moses and Elijah fading into the past. Amen. Great men, men to be honored, their memory, but now Jesus is taking over. The new covenant is replacing the old covenant. 
It reminds me, you know, when he, he puts the, the spotlight on Jesus rather than the heroes of the Old Covenant. A passage in Hebrews chapter 1. Let's turn there. Because the author of Hebrews is teaching the same lesson. The superiority of Jesus over anybody else. And in the day of this book being written, there was a lot of importance being placed on angels. People even worshiping angels at this point in time. And the author of Hebrews is showing, you don't worship angels, okay? We worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the author of Hebrews was showing the superiority of Jesus. Notice what he says in Hebrews 1 verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, Moses and Elijah. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is superior in so many ways to the individuals of the Old Testament. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So let's not forget that. Instead of learning from great leaders of the Old Testament, physical human beings, the one we look to now and learn from is the one who, by the way, happened to create the universe. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins by dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he, Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And I would say, in the same way, Jesus is much superior to the heroes of the Old Testament. They were merely men. Amen. Jesus is the, the Son of God. He is God himself. So this is the lesson that God is trying to teach these three apostles at this time. Don't be sad, you know, because of what's going to happen. He is going to suffer and die, but this is what he is going to look like afterwards. He's come to this earth for a purpose, to pay the penalty for the sins of the human race, to save the human race. And it's not the end of things, okay? So don't be dismayed. The kingdom that you're looking for is being established, but it's different from what you think. The kingdom of God is not meant to be like the Roman Empire or any great empire that has been on this earth. It's going to be different. It is going to be led by God, established by God, but it's going to be invisible. It's going to be mysterious. And in your physical form, you're not going to be able to see it or understand it completely. It's not going to be till later that you're going to have that understanding. So God tells us what is important. He tells that Jesus is the Son of God, loved by the Father. He speaks the words of God. And even when the greatest prophets from Israel's history are present, the disciples should listen to Jesus. He is greater than even Moses and Elijah, and therefore greater than the law or the prophets. If he says that he is going to be their Messiah by dying at Jerusalem, then they should pay attention to what he says, because that's what's going to happen. So prepare yourself for it. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Hang in there. 
Let's turn back to Mark now. Mark chapter 9, beginning uh, in verse 8. So they look around. Moses and Elijah are completely gone. All that's there is the three apostles and Jesus. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There's that sense of mystery. Why? <laughs> you know, if I came down from that hill, I'd want to blab it to everybody. You won't believe what we just saw. The glorified Jesus. It was overwhelming. It was unbelievable. His face was shining brighter than the sun. I'd want to tell everybody. And they're halfway down the hill, and Jesus said, Oh, by the way, it's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Not even all the 12 apostles were there, only three of them. So why that sense of mystery? Well, most likely, they didn't understand what had just happened. And Jesus told them, you're not really going to get it until after the crucifixion, after death and burial and resurrection from the dead, and eventually ascension of me back up into heaven. And I send you the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to start to understand what this was all about. So if I let you go out and start blabbing it now, you're going to have it so screwed up and so misunderstood that uh, it's not going to do anybody any good. So that's most likely why Jesus told them to just hang on. Keep your shirt on until all of it plays out. You get the Holy Spirit, then you're going to know what to say about this incident. And sure enough, they described it here in the Gospels. This story is in three different Gospels in the Bible. And it seems pretty clear to me. But don't forget, we have the Holy Spirit too, so we can understand this. You know, the common Joe out on the street, if he were to read this story, he's not going to get it either. You know, what's this all about? Or what does it mean? I don't understand it. Why is this important? Well, we have the story, even though we weren't there personally to witness Jesus suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, we have been given the Holy Spirit to read it and understand it, even though we weren't eyewitnesses. But Peter was. Peter was. And this gives him a basis for his faith, a basis for his hope for the future, because he has seen it. He's seen it. Seeing Jesus in his glorified form encouraged them that the kingdom of God would be a reality. But it wasn't just in the future. It was in their day, too. Jesus had been the beloved Son of God all along, and he came to earth as the promised Messiah. Even if he's not the kind of Messiah they expected right at that moment, and he wasn't, and it caused them a lot of consternation. He came to live it, to act it out, and display for them what the Messiah would truly be, and it would start out being a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant who was going to give his life. That was going to be necessary first to reunite us with God, to restore our relationship with God, and then it would go from there. The disciples were still very confused and wouldn't understand until after he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. And they were told to keep it a secret until they would have that understanding that would come with the Holy Spirit and give them clarity to truly explain what it meant. Let's turn to one more passage in 2 Peter. So here is one of the men that was there 
at this occasion. He witnessed this event with his own eyes. And notice, after Jesus died, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended back to heaven, this is what Peter has to say. See, now he has the Holy Spirit and he has given an understanding of what this whole episode meant. And this is what he says in 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. So Peter writes this, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. He says, as long as I'm in this physical life, I want to remind you about this once again. Verse 14, because I know that I will soon put it aside. He's going to die. He's going to put this tent, this uh, temporary body that he's living in. It'll be put in the grave. So that time is coming. He knows he's getting closer to that. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Verse 15, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, after my death, you will always be able to remember these things. We, the apostles, did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it wasn't fables. It wasn't made up fairy tales, the, the things that Peter and, and the others taught us. But listen, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's talking about this transfiguration now. He said, we saw it with our own eyes. We were there. Verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice, remember the voice came from the cloud, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So like I said, by being there and witnessing this, not just the transfiguration, but later Jesus suffering, remember Peter himself uh, rejected Jesus. Uh, you know, said he didn't know him. He didn't have anything to do with him when he did. So he lied about that. He was there for the crucifixion. He was there for the resurrection, Peter was. And he was there standing on the mount when Jesus eventually ascended back up to heaven. So Peter is saying, listen, this is not a fairy tale. This happened. I and others were there. And he mentions that this has been something that has strengthened and solidified his faith. And he's passing that message along to us, saying, you weren't there, I was. Trust me, it really happened. So in reading this and in believing this, having our faith in this, it's meant to strengthen our faith too. Our assurance of what the future is going to be like. Because Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are going to be changed just like Jesus was. Amen. You know, he put aside his human body and he was glorified as he ascended back up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. The same thing is going to happen to us. We're going to be changed in an instant, in the blink of an eye, from mortal to immortal. And Scripture tells us that we're going to see him because we're going to be like him. Amen. So we have it firsthand from one of the eyewitnesses, Peter himself. And just as this strengthened Peter's faith, 
and his resolution to be a follower of Jesus, it should do the same for us. So we have a choice as we read this to believe it or, or don't believe it. Peter is telling us with all sincerity, believe it. Because I personally was there. I saw it happen. Didn't fully understand it at the time. I was kind of confused because Jesus wasn't acting like the Messiah I expected him to be. You know, I wanted uh, the kingdom of God to be like the Roman Empire and have armies and conquer nations. But that was not what the Messiah came to be at that time. He came to be the Savior. He came to be the suffering servant. He came to die for the sins of the human race. So Peter says, believe it. So the choice is ours. We had a sermon a couple weeks ago about our free will. We can believe it or not believe it. And a lot of people today are not believing it and don't even want to read the Bible. But you have been given the story and you have been given the understanding through the Holy Spirit to take it to heart. And it should become a part of us and it should be one, one more uh, proof for each and every one of us that what we're believing and who we're following is real. So let it be a blessing to your faith as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this fabulous account of Jesus' transfiguration where his appearance was changed from physical to glorified. And we're encouraged because not only did this happen to him, but he was showing us an example of what's going to happen to us. The time is going to come when this physical body will no longer be needed and we will have eternal bodies, glorified bodies, with which we will dwell with you forever. So, Father, we look forward to that time. We're all going through the aches and pains and the, the, just the tiredness of this body wearing out gradually. And, Father, we praise you that you sustain us every day, that you strengthen us with your strength, but we look forward to the time that it will be accomplished once and for all, that we'll be changed forever and glorified just as Jesus was. So this story is an encouragement for all of us, and we thank you for that encouragement. We're not looking for a reward in this life. Our reward lies in the next life. That's when it's all going to happen for us. And it's all through your mercy and it's all through your grace. We owe it all to you, Father. So we'd like to thank you once again, and thank you for the understanding you've given us, that we can read these Bible accounts and really understand them deeply. So thank you, Father. We praise you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.